Hey there, Leah Ryan here. Welcome to episode 12 of the Authors Read podcast. Today's author is Sean Bloomfield, and he'll read from his book, Adventure North. Hello there. Uh, My name is Sean Bloomfield, and I am the author of Adventure North. I'm going to be doing a little bit of a reading from my book today. Uh, Adventure North is the story of a 2,200-mile canoe trip that I took when I was 18 years old. A neighborhood friend and I graduated high school early our senior year and took off April 28, 2008 from our hometown of Chaska, Minnesota, uh, just southwest of Minneapolis, and paddled north to Hudson Bay. Uh, I'm going to be reading the start of my book. It actually starts off with a quote from a newspaper article that was written about our story uh, the day we took off. And then it does a little bit of a flash forward to day 46 of our trip. Uh, And then midway through chapter one, it goes back to before our trip. But I don't think I'm going to have time to get uh, to the second part of the first chapter today. So hope you enjoy. If uh, you like what you hear, feel free to pick up the book and give the whole thing a read. They got in, took up their paddles and pushed off, heading against the flow up the Minnesota 300 miles to Ortonville and Big Stone Lake. That should take two weeks, they figure. After that, it's down the north-flowing Red River, across Lake Winnipeg, the long way, and then to the Hayes River and 16 sets of rapids down to Hudson Bay, carrying bear spray against the chance of polar bears. Just a jaunt of 2,250 miles or so, then back to Chaska in time for the state fair and a chance to rekindle a high school romance or two. Sean will attend Minnesota State Mankato in the fall. Colton hasn't picked a college yet. They pushed out into the swollen brown river. Take a right, yelled Colton's dad, Dan. Right was the right way. Upstream, up the continent, up to Hudson Bay. Nick Coleman, columnist, Minneapolis Star Tribune, April 29, 2008. Chapter 1. Dreams. Day 46, June 12, 2008, southwest corner of Swampy Lake in Manitoba. The alarm rang with unnerving normalcy. It was far too early in the morning. My slumber had begun what felt like only minutes prior. This feeling, too, had become normal. I poked my head out of the sleeping bag to investigate the source of the ear-shattering buzz. A battery-powered clock was lying directly above my head at the wall of the tent. 4.30 a.m. flashed mockingly in the fluorescent backlight. The light was totally unnecessary. Days away from the summer solstice and just beyond 160 miles southwest of Hudson Bay, Manitoba, so far north that polar bears outnumber people, it would have been difficult to find darkness had we wanted to. Below the time was a small thermometer. Inside our tent, the temperature was registering in at a frosty 25 degrees Fahrenheit. It seemed impossible that it was June. At 6 feet tall and 140 pounds, I was as lanky as they come. And throughout the 18 years of my life, cold never mixed well with lankiness. This morning was not the first of our trip that I wished for several extra pounds of insulation. My head turned and I peeked at the door to our tent. It was unrecognizable. Mosquitoes, in quantities that I had once thought to be impossible, masked the screen door waiting for the one barrier standing between them and their prey to be removed. Their thirst was understandable. Less than a dozen people traveled through this area each year, and human blood was a valuable commodity. We were their Thanksgiving feast. From my sleeping bag, after my head, came both hands. I gingerly removed them to inspect the damage from two days prior. Aside from the many blisters, they were visually fine. That stood opposite from the way they felt, as if on fire, every skin cell scalded by the most severe burn imaginable, caused simply by a mistaken coating of oil via our can of bear repellent. It made sense now what the rangers have told us, that bear spray could be more useful than a gun against polar bears. To be honest, if I had to pick between getting shot in the leg or sprayed with bear mace again, I would strongly consider the former. 
Alright, that's enough out of you. I finally groaned, tapping the button on the right side of our clock and bringing the obnoxious buzz to a halt. Less than one foot to my left, always to my left, lay my paddling partner, Colton Whitty. Unsurprisingly, his head had yet to surface from his sleeping bag. I was always the first to rise and accepted my responsibility of waking Colton dutifully. Colton, get up, I said, shoving his bag with more force than necessary. Without explanation, my wake-up calls had grown in aggression as our trip progressed. Despite this, or perhaps because of it, Colton had made a habit of simply groaning and rolling over. Giving up for the moment, I crawled out of my bag and to the door. In one swift movement, I slapped the screen to give the mosquitoes a momentary shock with one hand, unzipped the door with the other, and rolled outside onto the damp soil. Only several days prior, I would have frantically escaped the swarm of bugs that were now happily making my blood the breakfast of a lifetime. Mosquito bites were now the least of my concern, though, and my obligatory screen slap before opening the tent door was the most defense I was willing to exert. Standing up, I reached into the pocket of my raincoat for the white woolen winter hat, which was now a mainstay for the cold mornings of our expedition. Pulling it over my thick, shaggy black hair, I thought back to the day on the Red River when I had lost my first hat. Fortunately, my parents were able to bring along another one for a resupply in Winnipeg, but I shuddered at the thought of losing a hat up here. Though it was technically light outside, the sun was nowhere to be found. Roughly 20 feet of knee-high grass sloped its way from our tent beneath a layer of morning frost and down to the lazy Hayes River. Resting above the water was a still, windless fog. Across the river, the land was relatively bare, having recently fallen victim to a forest fire. We were just on the edge of the fire's reach, so several trees remained upright amidst the rubble of their fallen comrades. As I made my way to the water, my boots crunching in the stiff grass, I remarked at the eerie sensation that the fog had draped over our morning. Perhaps it was a calm before the storm ahead. At the riverbank, I knelt down and soaked my hands in the frigid water. We heard from a group of fishermen on Knee Lake a couple of days prior that less than two weeks ago, pickup trucks were driving on the lake's ice. While scooping the water with my palms and splashing it into my face, the closest thing to a shower in nearly a month, I wondered how long a person could survive if they swamped their canoe in these conditions. Best not to think about it. Breakfast was a quick, in-the-tent ordeal after Colton finally awoke, and then we were on our way. The mosquitoes continued to swarm our heads and attack our eyes as we loaded the canoe and pushed off into the idle river. It regularly took several minutes for the herd of skeeters to lose our scent and trail off. No doubt, due to a lack of bathing, we could surely be smelt from miles away. Just beyond our campsite, the haze flowed into Swampy Lake, which the two of us crossed in silent anticipation. At the far eastern end of the lake would be the start of what we called the Rapids section. Forty miles of nearly constant rapids or falls after which we would be home free, in theory. Here, our whitewater paddling would be put to the test, and after a shaky outing the evening before, I will not deny that I was at least slightly nervous. It was Colton's turn this morning to captain the canoe from the back, or stern. On a normal day, this meant little more than a change of scenery and slightly less legroom. Being several inches shorter, legroom mattered less to Colton than it did to me. Leading into a day full of raging rapids, though, meant he would have to be on the top of his game. The stern position was responsible for steering, and to be in control of the canoe in rapids was to be in control of our lives. On an island at the eastern end of Swampy Lake, we took refuge from a blistering wind and steadily increasing drizzle. Here we changed out of our dry, pleasant hiking boots and into our cold, moist neoprene boots. Normally meant for scuba diving, neoprene boots are naturally more at home in the water than your typical footwear. They provide better traction when submerged, continue to offer some small amount of insulation while wet, and they don't retain nearly as much water. As such, dive boots worked quite well for lining, or dragging our canoe through rapids, and kept our regular hiking boots dry. Dry feet is as essential a commodity toward survival as food. 
While rounding a bend at the entrance to the river, I looked longingly back at the whitecap-filled swampy lake. Wind is perhaps the most frustrating force of nature to a canoeist, but what was ahead for the next two days would be the greatest challenge of our lives. The immediate dangers of running rapids are obvious. Canoeists could, for instance, tip their canoe and fall out, subsequently hitting their head on rocks, or become pinned beneath fallen branches, so on and so forth. What was even more worrisome, however, was imagining the aftermath from tipping our canoe. We would almost surely be missing important bits of gear. If we were to lose our tent or stove, any hope of moderate comfort during the remaining journey would be killed. If we were to lose our food pack, we would have an immediate emergency on our hands. Lost paddles or a wrecked canoe? I didn't want to think about what being stranded in these conditions would be like. Beyond the plan of action type problems that would arise from tipping or wrecking, we would also certainly be risking hypothermia in the near freezing downpour. If all went according to plan, the cold and wetness that so tortured us would be limited to our extremities. Falling in, though, would wet our bodies to the core, resulting in possibly unrecoverable disaster. I swallowed nervously and looked briefly at Colton. His sandy brown hair, normally a short buzz, had grown long and untidy. The headwind blew icy rain onto his exposed head. A final straw. Hold on, he called, setting his paddle down in frustration. I gotta bundle up some more. On went the black and gray hat that had become such a common accessory to Colton's wardrobe. He then pulled the hood of his orange rain jacket over the hat and zipped it up so snug that only his eyes were visible. Can you see? I asked, knowing that his vision would be vital to our success. After he nodded in the affirmative and returned his paddle to the water, I turned my head forward towards the open, seemingly innocent river ahead of me. One thing that Colton and I noticed was that the person in the bow, me at the time, I always seemed to be more anxious while running rapids than the man in the stern. The bow yielded far less control of the craft. You never truly trust a friend, we found, until they've had your life in their hands. Ready? asked Colton. Do I have a choice? I thought somewhat sarcastically. I paused for a moment and stared forward towards our eventual goal. 160 miles ahead, Hudson Bay. Yep, I said. Let's do this. I'd like to thank Sean for sharing his book with us today, and thank you for listening to the Authors Read podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for the link to the book. If you'd like to support the Authors Read podcast, please like, subscribe, or share. Until next time.